Hi, everyone. Can, hello. Can everyone hear me okay, firstly? Yeah? Is that good? Okay. Yeah. It's really great for me to, to be here and to, yeah, get to know you a bit um, and to share. <laughs> when Sam got in touch, I think it was in maybe March, April time, I was like, wow, that's a pretty big topic. Um, but I know that you are all doing pretty big topics, relevant topics that are um, quite important to our culture, which is really great, and you're just in the middle of that. So really good to, to share with you in that. Um, so I'm going to do my best, but we'll see um, how it goes. And I want to start by telling you a story. It's a personal account uh, from a slave man who lived in southern North America at the end of the 19th century. His name isn't given, but we'll call him Walter. Um, Walter suddenly got very, very ill, and it wasn't clear what illness he had, but he couldn't sleep, and this went on for weeks. Then things got worse. Whenever he tried to drink water, he couldn't swallow it. He tried to drink, but it would just swell up in his throat. One night, as he was going to church, a voice began to whisper to him. It said, Mercy, Lord. Mercy, Lord. When he left the church, suddenly everything seemed different to him, and he lost sight of the cares of this world. Following that experience, Walter had an extraordinary encounter and this is how he described it. Jesus hadn't talked to me, so I decided to ask him to talk to me. I lays myself across the bed and puts my hand on my feet and said, Lord, show me a sign that I am your child. Immediately, I wheels over on my back and throws my eyes to the east corner of my house, and I spied a white man through the eye of faith. And when I looked again, I could see the boss, plain, and he was hanging up there on a cloud. Walter later came to view his life through the good news of Jesus, and he responded to the gospel by changing his life. But he also viewed Jesus as a white man, and he describes it like this, through the eye of faith. How did Walter come to see a brown-skinned Jewish rabbi from the Middle East as Caucasian? And what are we to make of the intermingling of faith and white dominance? Well, whatever we think about it, it raises many questions. And one of them is, is Christianity white? So, is Christianity white? For some of you, you might have your answer ready in your heart. And I suspect most of you would be thinking, of course it isn't. If you're familiar with the history of Christianity, you'd know that the faith originated from the Middle East where most people have a tanned complexion. Jesus, who is the founder of the Christian faith, was Jewish, a culture drastically different to ours. And if you look around the world today, Christianity is thriving and dominant in Africa and many parts of Latin America. And yet for all of us, whether we're white or not, the answer to this question has massive implications for whether we draw near to the true God of Christianity 
or stay clear of him altogether. Playwright and activist James Baldwin gives his take on this really important question. He says, the fact that I was dealing with Jews brought the whole question of color which I had been desperately avoiding into the terrified center of my mind. I realized that the Bible had been written by white men. I knew that, according to many Christians, I was a descendant of Ham who had been cursed and that I was therefore predestined to be a slave. This had nothing to do with anything I was or contained or indeed could become. My fate had been sealed forever from the beginning of time. And it seemed indeed when one looked over out to Christendom that this was effectively what Christendom believed. It was certainly the way it behaved. There are many things to unpack there in that quote by James Baldwin. How did he, who grew up in the church and himself preached in his teenage years, become convinced that the Bible was written by white men? Why did the Christians in his context believe that black people were forever destined to be the underclass? And it's not hard to imagine that sadly, with that perspective of Christianity, Baldwin became disillusioned with the faith and left his Christian heritage to turn his social efforts elsewhere. He goes on to write, if the concept of God has any validity or any use, it can only be to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God cannot do this, then it is time we got rid of him. And I would agree with him. If Christianity cannot stand up to its own claims to make us freer and more loving, if it can't challenge our internal biases to make a fairer world, then why should we follow this faith which claims to be one of love and equality? So you can probably guess that, contrary to Baldwin, I do believe Christianity, true Christianity, can live up to its claims, and I don't think Christianity is white. But before we get into some of the answers from the Bible for why I believe this is the case, I think we need to address the real historical facts and take a look at some examples of how this faith came to be so corrupted during the slave trade and the era of colonialism. If Christianity is going to have any relevance for us, it has to be able to face up to an answer for the real facts of its own history. And God is not afraid of those facts. Um, so we can address them head on. I'm going to share two examples of Christianity and white supremacy coming together. And I argue that these contributed to and um, perpetuated uh, ideas around white dominance. So the first example it raises the question, what kind of Christianity was offered to slaves? What you see here is the front matter to a slave Bible. This Bible had many chapters taken out which the white ruling class believed would encourage slaves to fight for their freedom. So instead of having the full 1,189 chapters as would have been the case for the King James Version at the time, this slave Bible had only 232. So that's 90% of the Old Testament being removed and 50% of the New Testament. 
including stories, uh, the story of Moses demanding Pharaoh release the Israelites. Other verses they took out were Galatians 3.28, which says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, which says, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. Instead of including the full Bible, they omitted verses that could inspire uprisings and kept verses which emphasized submission to authority. Now, I just have a really quick side note here. There are verses in the Bible which command slaves to obey their masters, and there is a whole conversation about whether Christianity, in essence, supports slavery, particularly the slavery that we are most familiar with uh, in transatlantic slave trade. Um, what I will say is this, in short, the answer is no, <laughs> and uh, the verses in the New Testament which command slaves to submit to their masters are seeking to equip believers who have decided to follow Jesus. The writers are encouraging slave believers to know their wealth in the gospel by trusting in Jesus and not repaying evil for evil. The writers are not making a positive judgment on the whole socio-economic makeup of their context. But I want you to see what is going on here with the slave Bible. Because of the desire to keep slavery and white dominance, the Christians of this day took out parts of God's word. They twisted God's word to suit their own agendas. And so they presented a warped Christianity to slaves. The second example I'd like to share raises the question, who is able to lead God's people in truth? Who is able to lead God's people in truth? At the beginning of the 20th century, Cameroonian indigenous pastors Lotin Same and Joshua Dibundu fought against par parish mission and German colonial efforts to impose a Europeanized Christianity. So one major contention was that Same and Dibundu only recognized baptism by full immersion and they recognized polygamy whereas the European church pushed for baptism by the sprinkling of water and did not recognize poly polygamous marriages. The main thing for Same and Dibundu was that they believed the Cameroonian church needed to be led by Cameroonians. It wasn't enough for Dibundu and Same to serve Jesus only through a Western lens. They knew that Jesus was for all people and that his power could work to build a thriving church with godly leaders in any land. But tensions between the Cameroonian church and the European church continued, and the end result of this struggle was that Same, in particular, became an enemy to the Paris mission, and he had to go and preach the gospel in secret. After a protest in Cameroon's uh, capital, the city of Douala, things turned pretty ugly for the Cameroonian church and it was met with over 15 years of systematic subjugation with the removal of its pastors and it, their imprisonment and also arson attacks on its churches. Now, 
I should say the process of equipping indigenous people to lead their own people is a very complex conversation. And I am not supporting the Cameroonian church's position on polygamy. But I deliberately use this example to show that, in reality, Christianity merging with and transforming culture is, is not a simple process. It's complex. The point I want to make is that their European powers thought it was, or at least that's what their actions showed. They thought they could come with particular styles of worship, particular structures of liturgy, and doctrinal emphases and call that true Christianity and call any deviation away from this as false Christianity. The European Christian Church was not prepared to give up its power to allow Cameroonian leaders to properly shepherd their own people. Instead of acknowledging the ways they believed orthodox teaching and instead of viewing the Cameroonian pastors as co-laborers in the gospel, the European church saw them as their enemies. The result was to systematically remove them and also turn to violence. These no doubt have contributed to lasting effects which um, affect how both whites and non-whites view Christianity and Jesus ultimately. So what are we to make of this? Does the Bible have anything to say? I think the Bible has a lot to say, but I want to highlight two things I think are useful for us working through this issue of Christians and white supremacy. So these are the two things. First is the depths of our sin. And the second is God's ability to overcome our sin through his justice and love. Firstly, the Bible teaches that our sin runs deep. But what is sin? Our sin is our rebellion against God. It's not just the wrong things we do or the good things we fail to do. It's also about the posture of our heart. It's about the direction of our desires. The Bible teaches that we are so sinful that we have the ability to take good things things like God's word which brings salvation and twist them for our own selfish purposes. Listen to what Peter, a writer in the New Testament, has to say. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Who is Peter talking to? He's talking to the Church of Christ. He's talking to Christians who have committed to Jesus as their Lord. But he says to them, there are people among you, they eat with you, they read religious texts, they even teach the Bible. But because of their greed, these leaders exploit God's people with fabricated stories. Isn't it interesting that Peter here chooses greed to pinpoint the problem of these false Christian leaders? 
And can't we say with historical hindsight that much of the driving force behind slavery and colonialism was greed? And isn't it possible that many religious leaders twisted God's word to that end for economic gain? And hasn't the way of truth been brought into disrepute because of that? Listen to what Jesus said, who founded the Christian faith. Um, he has something to say about false believers in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. That's just very sobering. But those of you thinking critically about what I'm saying might ask, but isn't this a bit of a cop-out to suggest that all those who used Christianity for selfish reasons weren't actually truly Christian? Anyone can say that about their religion, right? We might hear other people say it about theirs. We might hear people say that about Islam or Hinduism where we have ex um, examples of extremist uh, behavior. And that's a really good question and to which I would answer no. I'm not saying that all Christians who engaged in or supported transatlantic slavery or colonialism were not true Christians. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that throughout the history of the church, there have been and will always be people who look the part, but not truly be the part. And these people will do many things in the name of God and in the name of Jesus without truly having a personal relationship with him. Understanding this provides a little bit of perspective in that we can say it is highly probable that despite Christianity being the dominant religion of North America and Britain during the colonial and slave era, there would have been many who would not have understood the message of Jesus, even though they knew the lingo of Christianity and even though they were able to do many religious things. But what about those who do have a true authentic faith? Is it possible to be so entangled within our own cultural system that we miss the message of the gospel and indeed perpetuate white supremacy? The answer the Bible gives is yes. Peter, who wrote this warning that we've just read, himself struggled with cultural superiority showing favoritism to his Jewish clan. And it is recorded in the Bible for our benefit. Isn't that fascinating? The Bible doesn't have anything to hide when it comes to dealing with truth, uh, when it comes to dealing with the ugliness of our sin, even if it means exposing the sin of its own writers. And this is, this is recorded for us in the book of Galatians chapter two. Peter had previously been eating with Christians who had converted from non-Jewish backgrounds. But for some reason, when another apostle came, he decided to change his mind and started eating only with his Jewish mates. This is Peter who himself experienced Jesus's forgiveness after he denied him three times. This is Peter who saw up close the goodness of Jesus's life and spent years with him. 
despite knowing Jesus and despite even being a leader, he still had heart issues. So much so that Paul, who wrote that letter, and I quote his words, he says, I had to oppose him to his face. Paul says, he and the rest of the Jews, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically with him. Hypocritically. Despite knowing the grace of God, Peter still needed to grow. And this chimes with how, with what the Bible says about the depth of our sin. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to break down our selfishness and tribalism over time. But it does break it down. Those who experience God's grace do show true change. And Peter grew in the gospel. As he received Paul's correction, he grew in knowledge and understanding of Jesus' plan to build a church which included people from every group. He even went on to encourage the Gentiles through his letters. He couldn't have done that without having a relationship with the Gentiles, right? Without humbling himself to get to know them. And isn't this the hope of the gospel? That those who truly know Jesus will change by the power of the Holy Spirit. We as Christians can have hope for people. We don't need to rush to cancelling people from our lives or social media accounts. The second way the Bible responds is this. God's ability to overcome our sin through his justice and love. The Bible teaches that despite our sinfulness, God in his power overcomes through his justice and love. Really, I should say, he overcomes through his loving justice. Because these parts of his nature are not mutually exclusive. They go together. The Bible teaches that God is just, meaning he cannot overlook sin. Sin has to be paid for. It cannot be swept under the carpet as if there was no cost. One of the ways the Bible uh, talks about this is through God's judgment. How does God's judgment help us reconcile the abuses of racism and white supremacy? It does this by acknowledging that God in his sovereignty doesn't miss, miss a single act, racist act or word. All the abuses of colonialism and racism have been recorded. And there will come a day when everyone who has committed those heinous crimes, whether or not they answered for them in an earthly court, will have to answer for them in a heavenly court. And this will be personal. There is a day set aside for when every human being will meet personally with God. The passage we looked at in Matthew speaks directly of this. And God will make a judgment on the heart of every human being. And he will decide whether we spend eternity with him or eternity without him. Every person who has died with a hardened, unrepenting, racist heart, denying the lordship of Jesus in their lives, will have to answer for their heart and will be cast out to where Jesus describes Gehenna, darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is hard to hear, but it should humble us. This should make us slow to judge people, lest we ourselves miss the grace of Jesus because of of pride. But how is God's justice loving? 
It is loving because we can trust that all those abuses didn't just evaporate into the thin air of history. We can trust that the repercussions of those abuses which still linger today matter to God. He sees them. If God was indifferent to suffering and injustice, if he had the power to do something but didn't, how could he be righteous or just? How could he be loving? God expresses his love through his just punishment to those who shut him out of their lives. Again, this is hard what I'm saying. It's not easy to, to hear, and I don't say it lightly. And I can't reiterate enough that knowing the reality of God's judgment should make us incredibly humble, patient people because we ourselves have been spared because of Jesus. But God also expresses his love through drawing near to those who know they need help. He is so loving that he transforms sinners through his grace. Listen to these words from Paul to the early church. For the grace of God appeared, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to an- renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, who are zealous for good works. Did you catch that? Salvation for all people, black, white, Asian, rural, urban. But I want to hone in to something really important in verse 11 to 12. It says, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. It doesn't say the discipline of God or the holiness of God or the sternness of God, even though Paul could have said those things. What is Paul trying to communicate? That word grace in the Greek is charis, meaning goodwill, loveliness, kindness, favor. It is the loving kindness of our God which trains us to say no to racism because we ourselves, despite our sin, have been welcomed into the family of God. God is in the business of transforming racist sinners and he does this by lavishing his grace to all who will receive him who will admit they need saving and submit to his lordship. His power actually changes people. He doesn't leave us in our sin. And one of the signs that we have experienced God's grace is that we grow in this area. Have we truly experienced that? Have we experienced his grace? I thought it would be good to... uh, spend about 20 minutes for us to chat on our tables, get a cup of tea and yeah, just chat over some questions. And then I will come back and share a few closing words. Is that good? Yeah, cool. Um, Hopefully you found your discussions and the questions helpful. And yeah, please do 
carry on your discussions about this topic in your home groups or yeah, with your friends. And um, I'll just close with a, a few last comments. So going back to the first question I asked, is Christianity white? And hopefully you can see the implications for this question. Um, if Christianity is white, how could non-whites fully partake in it and truly be themselves? If Christianity is white, how could white people experience the richness of God working in cultures outside of their own and saving all kinds of different people? And I hope you can see the beauty of Titus 2, salvation being for all people. And true Christianity is not white, and that's good news for both white people and non-white people. Um, it means that whites can have the privilege of being taught by non-white leaders and gain insight that they wouldn't have ordinarily been able to receive. And this is good news for people who are not white. People can be accepted by God just as they are. So we can be equipped to understand the Bible correctly and lead God's people in faithfulness. And Christianity teaches that ultimately all of us need needs God's grace and he offers it to all. There is a day when Jesus will put everything right, but in the meantime, he is transforming racist sinners to help them turn away from their racism and, and run to the Father's grace. And have you experienced this grace? I hope you will look into it if you haven't. And if you have, I hope you will lean into it all the more. I'm just gonna pray, that's okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of grace and that it is your grace that changes us. It's because you are kind, you are lovely, you are worthy, you are a God full of favor. And I thank you that you love this church family and you are wanting them to grow and to be engaged with all different issues which are um, hot topics in our culture. I pray, Father, that that growth would continue, Lord. And I really pray uh, as well for anyone here who, who is looking into Christianity or it's new for them. Um, I pray that you would draw near to them. And for, for anyone who has been walking with you, Jesus, for years, I pray, Father, that they would feel a fresh touch of your grace and of your, your love. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.